I would normally begin here by uh, telling my Bob Costa story, which is actually a pretty good uh, little story, but instead, why don't we go right to the interview? Uh, Bob was kind enough to spend uh, a few minutes with me talking about storytelling, and I began by asking him, what is it that makes a great story? Well, detail helps. Vivid, colorful detail helps. It also helps if either the subject matter is relatable or it's about a person that people are interested in. Either it's a personal anecdote that the individual is telling or if a sentence begins with, let me tell you about the time Marlon Brando and I, (laughs) chances are you're headed toward a good story if the person has any storytelling ability. Yeah, it's it's one of the interesting things that I find is uh, when I'm interviewing people, and obviously it's different on television and and radio and, and any kind of uh, you know medium like that. A lot of times, people's best stories are the ones that they don't think are their best stories. Like they have their own story that they tell a lot, and you, you know you hear mm-hmm. it, and it's fine. And then you talk to them about something else, and they've got some crazy Marlon Brando story that they just didn't even realize would be interesting to anybody. And you know that was part of the secret. Uh, to the success of the show that I did way back when on NBC following David Letterman. In fact, when I started, Johnny Carson was still the 1130 guy, and then David, and then I came on at 1.30 in the morning, Eastern Time, uh, for my little half-hour chat show with a single guest, no bells and whistles, no studio audience. Um, and very often, although I'd like to think that I may have asked some good questions, it was just the matter of them becoming comfortable enough and knowing that it, it wasn't going to be a soundbite situation. Absent bells and whistles, very often the best stuff came in the second half of the conversation. Or if it became a double show in the second show, if we just kept the tape going. Because then the person became comfortable enough and trusting enough and very often delivered the best anecdotes, not in response to specific questions, but they just got rolling. And it would be more in the category of, oh yeah, that reminds me. Or you want to hear another one? And then the, the audience began to feel as if they were eavesdropping on a conversation between two people that they wouldn't mind sharing a dinner table with. Yeah, and, and you, you bring up a point that as a, as a viewer of later uh, would notice all the time, it's, it's like the first couple of minutes you're trying, you know, and I'm sure this was, this, this got, hopefully this got easier as time went on, but you're trying to say, hey, this isn't like the other talk shows where I'm going to have you on, give me two stories, and then I'm, you know, off to Don Rickles. You know, this is this is the one where we're going to have a whole show together or multiple shows in several cases, and there's time, and, and you could see that. You could see them becoming a little more comfortable with, oh, I can actually go a little deeper and, and, and tell stories that might not have time for in the, in the very cl- you know, quick slot that I would have with Letterman or somebody like that. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll give you a specific one that I will never forget, and neither will anyone who was in the room, which really just means a few producers and uh, the cameramen and technicians. We had Anthony Quinn on, and naturally, because it was Anthony Quinn and because of the depth of his career, we had planned for it to be two shows. And one half-hour show, minus commercials, is 22 minutes. So for two shows, just because you wanted to have the ability to select the best stuff, you might tape for somewhere between 50 and 60 minutes, and then you'd edit it down to the best 44. So we're somewhere in the last quarter of that stretch. And I just happened to ask him, having no idea where this might lead, are you a method actor? How do you get into a role? For example, when you played Zorba the Greek, there's a scene in which you say, when my son Dimitri died, everyone wept at the funeral, but I got up and danced. Now, that was true to the character of Zorba, but you're talking about the loss of a child. What was in your mind as you prepared to do this scene? And I had no idea, Joe, none, where this might lead. In fact, it could have led to nothing and might have wound up on the cutting room floor. And he kind of pulled himself up in his seat and set that great granite jaw. You know, he had a face that could go on Mount Rushmore. And he folded his arms across his chest, and then he dropped them to his side, 
And he said, well, you've been very nice to me, and you seem to be genuinely interested, which I was. wasn't that my questions were that great. I was interested. This was a guy who had done great work. And he said, and since you want to know about me, I'm going to tell you something that I've never spoken about publicly. He said, I had a son who died. He was just a little boy, like Dimitri, and I've created an entire life for him in my mind. In my imagination, he's an architect who lives in San Francisco, and I speak to him, if only in my mind, every day, and he updates me on his life. And so I was thinking of when I lost my own little boy when I did that scene. And what do you say to that? Wow, yeah. Except to let him complete the story. And his lower lip trembled a little bit, but he didn't lose it. But you could tell he was emotional about it. And a cameraman, a guy who'd been around a long time at NBC, told me that there were tears in his eyes as he heard Quinn tell his story. But he didn't fill me in on the particulars. And this was before there was a Google world, so there was a little bit more research needed. And I found out by the next day, because I was curious, that in fact his son not only had died at the age, I think, of three, no more than four, but I'm pretty sure it was three, he drowned, the little boy drowned in W.C. Fields' swimming pool oh, wow. in the late 1930s. And this was, I don't know, 1990 when we're doing this interview. I think I think the boy's death was in the late 1930s or early 1940s. Um, and all this time, the way he had mourned the child and salved the wound was to keep alive in his own head the life that he imagined this beautiful boy might have led. Now, what did I do? Did I draw that out of him? Just a 60 minutes interview? No, there are different types of interviews. Right. You interview um, Jerry Sandusky, it's a much different situation. Not just because of what Sandusky did, uh, but because there are some interviews, maybe that's a bad example, you interview the commissioner of a league, uh, some of that is going to be newsworthy type stuff. So there's an automatic give and take. And although you try to be polite and civil, uh, it might be somewhat contentious because you're supposed to ask those kinds of questions. But when you're talking to someone about their life story, what you're trying to do is to get them to tell it. And all I did was be reasonably well-informed about his life so that he respected that, and genuinely interested enough that he felt comfortable enough after all these years as a public figure to tell that story at that time. That's amazing. I mean, it really is amazing. And your point about having different kinds of interviews, and obviously... Uh, again, I think it's very different on television. I think of your interviews that you would do on later, uh, like that one or, or with, with Jerry Lewis or whoever the case may mm. be, and how different those are than, say, the Mark McGuire interview you did, where your sure. interview was very it – was, it was clearly news-breaking, and, and that was the whole point. You weren't there – was, there was no opportunity in the middle there for Mark McGuire to tell me you know, how you started playing baseball. I mean, it was no. – you, you had to focus on the news. Yeah, and at the same time, uh, because it was open-ended, uh, we could go as long as we wanted. Um, I could go down a few paths, um, not in the first 10, 15 minutes – but if you knew you only had 10 minutes, then it has to be rat-a-tat-tat. Right. Here, I knew it was going to be at least an hour and could have been longer than that if we felt we hadn't covered enough ground or if he was uh, opening up more than um, we might have expected. Uh, so, so even there, it's somewhat different depending upon what the format is. If Mark McGuire had chosen, and in fact, he had two choices in his mind, either to do it on 60 Minutes or to do it on the Baseball Network, and if it had been on 60 Minutes, whoever did it would have done a magnificent job, I'm sure, because all their correspondents are very good at that. But it would have had to have been edited, and they would have devoted no more than 15 minutes to it, which right. is a fairly long piece in television. Even if it was on HBO's Real Sports, which is the gold standard of television sports journalism, they wouldn't have had an hour. No. So the fact that we had an hour allowed me to to let him be more expansive in his answers 
and to come back and ask follow-ups. I must have asked him a half dozen different ways, gently, because I wanted him to come to grips with it, which he never really did. But I must have asked him a half dozen different ways. Wait a minute. They call it performance-enhancing drugs because it enhances performance, not just that it gets you to recover from injuries. And even if your original intent was to take steroids because they might help you get back on the field, didn't you notice that you were an even better player and an even more powerful hitter after you had taken steroids than you were before? But no matter how I phrased it and no matter how I came back to it, he insisted not um, angrily, but just insisted that it was just therapeutic. Um, so to that extent, I, I could never get him to, I, I think I got him to answer the questions honestly, because in his own mind, that was the honest answer. Right. But we all know that it's an answer that didn't really fly. No, it didn't fly, but I, but I think your point is, is right, and that's, that's almost a different kind of storytelling. He, he wasn't going there. He just was not going there. In his mind, there was, that was a line he was not going to cross. Mm-hmm. He believed, and believes to this day, that it was all about uh, therapeutic. Uh, you know, it was all about getting back on the field. He remembers the pain of, of being injured and off the field and when he thought his career might be over. And in his mind, that's all it was. And, and he wasn't, it, it didn't, it, you know, you could ask the question however many different ways you want. He was never going to go there because he never believed it. So that thought that was interesting. Yeah. And, you know, it was a live interview and not a second of it was edited. And it went through my mind toward the end, as I came back to it a fourth and fifth, and I think six different ways I came back to it, um, that maybe there's kind of a soundbite moment here where you kind of go for the knockout. And for two reasons I didn't. One, he was in emotional duress. And regardless of the disapproval that people feel, and I was among the first to express it publicly about the steroid era, Mark McGuire is a basically decent human being. And you, he, he was weeping during parts of it. Uh, he was in emotional turmoil. But the other more important reason was that any reasonably intelligent viewer could infer for him or herself exactly what was going on here. And it was just like you said. The viewer knew after I'd come back to it a half dozen times and tried to give him different ways to look at it that he just couldn't get his arms around what the full picture of what had happened. And so people could draw their own conclusions. There wasn't a need for me to grandstand and ask a prosecutorial question. It was already out there. Everything you needed to know and hear was there to draw your own conclusions. And so, you know, there was, there was no need to, uh, to slam the hammer down because all the information was out there. Right. I, I think the story was told. I, I think that's a perfect example of the story was told by how he responded. So I, I, I think I think you're right. I really do. Um, as we talk about stories, you and I have talked about this before. Uh, you've obviously done broadcasting and all, you know, every different kind of sport. Um, it feels like baseball is the best storytelling sport for an announcer because of the time you have you would you would agree with that wouldn't you absolutely in fact if you can't be a storyteller you can't be a great baseball announcer and maybe not even a very good one um perhaps you can be adequate but if it's all ball one strike two if it's all statistics as important as stats are to baseball if that's all it is and there's nothing anecdotal and there's nothing historical um, you're in trouble. And I think that's even more true today because a 2-1 game can last three and a half hours. Yeah. You know, and, and I, I see too many baseball broadcasts, no matter how good the analysts are, and many of them are tremendously good, and I learn a lot from watching them. But there are more than 200 pitches thrown in a baseball game. And if you watch the average, at least, network baseball telecast, maybe not local, but the average network telecast, I'd say that 75% of those pitches are analyzed. You know, he came back with the changeup after showing him the slider. And, of course, that's important. The dynamics of the pitcher-batter matchup are important. But how is it that Vin Scully has done so well for so long 
without analyzing every single pitch. Yeah. Because that's not what a baseball broadcast should sound like, at least not in my mind. Well, and this being Vin's last year, and obviously everybody feeling emotional about it, and, and uh, you know he's meant so much of the game, it's really very interesting to see. And again, this is something you and I have talked about. There's nobody else like Vin. And it's not, I mean, there's many things that nobody else can be like Vin because of the way many, many different things have changed. Nobody would get the opportunity mm-hmm. to do it the way he does, etc. But... It does not feel like, as as beloved as Vin Scully is, that Vin Scully is sort of the father of of broadcasting today. It doesn't feel like there are that many oh, people no. who do it in his in his uh, image. No, everyone tips their cap to him, yes. and rightly. But a, no one else has come along that has that exact combination of qualities. But b, even if another person came along, if a thirty year old person came along today and had kind of an, with an updated frame of reference, had the same command of language, the same sort of uh, sense of pace and narrative, the ability to capture a moment, the sense of history, all those qualities that he has. The landscape is so different. That person, although he or maybe someday she would be truly great, the impact would not be the same. Right. A, He's been associated with one of the most important and historic franchises in all of American sports, in Brooklyn and then in Los Angeles. So many great moments, including chronicling a good portion of the career of Jackie Robinson and then baseball's move west. But also, very importantly, during much of his career, radio was the primary outlet. That's how people got their baseball, through radio. And as Vin himself has said, on the radio, they give you a blank canvas, and you do all of it, the brush strokes as well as the broad strokes. Whereas on television, you're trying to put a caption beneath the picture that already exists, and of course Vin does that beautifully. But his real essence was on radio. And at a time when you didn't have baseball available all over the dial and in little bits and pieces in sound bites and highlights, the way people, the, the way the game came to them was different. Um, the game of the week, when he did it in the 1980s, was truly the game of the week. Right. Those games on Saturday would get better ratings than many primetime programs get today because the television universe wasn't as cluttered and wasn't as much baseball otherwise available. And when he did the World Series in the 80s, and when the Mets played the Red Sox, or the Dodgers played the A's, those games got blockbuster ratings. And then a couple of the most memorable moments in baseball history occurred on his watch, the ball going through Buckner's legs and Kirk Gibson's home run to a national audience. To a local audience, he'd already done Sandy Koufax's perfect game and Hank Aaron's 715th home run because it happened against the Dodgers. But he managed to be known to both a local audience, a wide local audience on the West Coast, a national audience with some wonderful moments in the 80s, and now he's been around long enough that through cable TV and and the the MLB package, there are people all over the country that are hearing Vin Scully. And as great as he is, and you'll understand this, Joe, as great as he is, if he started out today as mean-spirited and dopey and snarky as a lot of the public discourse is about everybody and everything, there'd be some snipers. But he's one of the few people who is grandfathered in. He's done it for so long, and he's so beloved, and of course he is truly and genuinely great, that he's almost immune to any criticism. And A, he doesn't deserve much criticism at all, but B, you, you don't have to deserve criticism to get it in this environment. But he, he's been around so long that it would almost, it would almost be like you know, throwing, throwing rocks at the Sistine Chapel, so no one's going to do it. No, no, and that's, that's 100% true. I mean, he's, he's the one guy, if you went on Twitter, uh, not that you would, but if you went on Twitter and searched. No, I won't. But yeah, <laughs> And you searched Vince Scully's name, you would see nothing but positive comments. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, that pretty was, much, you know, that which is. Yeah, and, the, and there's also this, and this is important when you talk about storytelling. Uh, the way baseball is covered in the modern era 
has a lot to be said for it. Uh, the camera work is wonderful. Uh, the HD quality of it, the graphics, um, the analysts are terrific. But the average broadcast often has three people in it. Right. Uh, maybe more if you count a dugout reporter. Vince Scully, A, has the ability to do a ball game by himself, but B, and this is something that I think people don't really perceive as they watch it, a Dodger telecast is now the only telecast that I can think of in all the sports that is directed and produced from the inside out. They are following Vin. He is never following them. Yeah. Now, it's always a collaboration between the truck and the booth. It always should be. The director always should listen to the broadcaster, and the broadcaster should always follow what the director or producer have in mind. It's a collaboration. And so I'm not, I'm not saying that, uh, that network directors aren't mindful of what Joe Buck is saying or, or what I'm saying. Of course they are. But these games are directed so that Vin Scully can be Vin Scully. Yes. If you watch them, you'll notice they're not cluttered by replays, only essential replays. Sometimes Vin will say, let's see if we can see that again. And only then will they roll it in. There's hardly ever any superfluous graphics. They just get out of the way to let Vin Scully be Vin Scully. Um, and I don't think even if someone as talented were to come along next week, that that can ever be duplicated. I agree. You know what I think of it as? I really think of it as a show. It's like it's like Vin Scully is hosting the Dodgers, and nobody else has that that kind of authority, of course, and and the experience and all that. But nobody nobody else is given that opportunity. Exactly, exactly. And when you think about it, you would have to be minimally seventy five years old to remember, if you were eight years old and had a very sharp memory and you were a precocious baseball fan, to remember the first sentence that Vin Scully ever uttered on a major league game. His career encompasses well more than half the modern history of the game. And if you wanted to play a baseball version of Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon, you know that game where they say that Kevin Bacon can be connected in six moves or fewer to anyone who has ever been in a movie in the entire history of cinema. Well, I think you could connect Vin Scully to everyone who's ever been connected to baseball, including Abner Doubleday, in less moves than that. Yeah. I think in three or four moves, you could connect Vin Scully to just about everybody of consequence who's ever had anything to do with baseball. It's really incredible. It's an incredible career. There'll never be another uh, career like that. No, you know? no. All right, so when you are doing a broadcast, a baseball broadcast specifically, um, mm -hmm. you will have, obviously, you do – I know this. You do a ton of research going into the game. How often will you, during a game, have a story pop into your head that you had not prepared? Oh, very often. Very often. Uh, something someone says reminds you of it, or something occurs during the game, or there's uh, a play that, that takes place that's reminiscent of something uh, that you saw 20 years ago. Uh, as we're taping this, just last night I did the Cubs and Cardinals at Bush Stadium, and somehow uh, my own meager playing career came up. <laughs> and I told John Smoltz the story of my high school baseball coach, Chuck Orant, who had actually pitched briefly in the Pirates chain back when the minor leagues went all the way down to D-ball, and I don't think he got much higher than that. But he was a math teacher and baseball coach. And when he cut me from the team, which was far from unexpected, I knew it was coming. So when he cut me from the team, he actually said, Costas, I don't think you can hit your weight, and I don't even think you weigh 130. But I'll tell you this, Costas, you seem to know a good deal about baseball, and you never stop talking. Have you ever thought about being an announcer? And at that point, I was like 16, and I said, yeah, since I was about seven or eight. And he said, he was kind of a terse man, but I liked him. He said, that's a better plan, Costas. <laughs> and he turned and walked away. And that's how he cut me from the team. And I told that story last night. And I certainly hadn't written it on my scorecard before the game. Yeah, that, I, to me, that would, be, that would be the fun part. Obviously, you know, 
it's it's the story has to come to you at the right time. That's the other thing. Talk a little bit about that. I, I don't like doing the talk about questions, but if you would talk a little bit about the pacing of stories because of, of the way the innings progress and because of so right. many different things you have to do on television, you can't just start a story anytime you want. That's true. And that is, going back to Vin Scully, an advantage that he has and which he has earned and which he deserves. There's very, very little clutter on the broadcast. And since he's one of the few people ever who's capable of doing all nine innings by himself, as good as his color man might be in theory, having no one else there allows him to orchestrate the inning. He knows that if he has to stop his story to say sharp ground ball to second base, Kendrick throws him out, it'll just pick up right where he left off. It's a little trickier. Uh, You've got to run a different kind of gauntlet on network television because there are apt to be replays. There are apt to be commercial drop-ins. There are other people on the broadcast who have valuable things to say. Uh, they're, they're much more heavily produced. You're apt to have graphics in there and, and whatnot. So um, you've got to pick a spot. You don't want to start telling a story with two outs. You don't want to start telling a story with a guy at the plate who's apt to hit into a double play with one out. Um, you've got to pick your spot if it's a story that's going to take maybe a few pitches to get to, and then you hope that uh, both the director and your partners in the booth are aware that you're in the midst of a story and that they'll let you, you know, let it have its beginning, middle, and end. Does that come from, from just working with, with somebody, you know, for a while? I mean, do they, do you feel like you get that, that sort of freedom when once, once a story, you know, that really fits in, because again, it's, it's so, to me, it's so important in baseball. I, I don't think uh, football is completely different. I think you would agree. Yeah. In football, you really do want to see like replays and see because you never know what really happened the first time you saw the play. Anyway, I mean, there's too much going right. on. But baseball, it's I mean, it's so much about the storytelling. So do you do you feel like that the, you know you get those opportunities? Yes, by and large, not not as much as as I would on a local broadcast. But everything's a trade off. You know, you get to speak to the whole country sure. when you do a network broadcast. And you get to work with some of the very best technical people and some of the very best fellow broadcasters. So it's a trade-off. But, yeah, they, they generally give me enough room. Uh, they can tell when I'm about to launch into something, and they give me enough uh, space to do it. For example, another one last night that popped into my head, uh, the Cardinals have this kid out of nowhere Jeremy Hazelbaker. Sure. He's played over 700 minor league games for 12 different minor league teams. And at the age of 28, after being released out of double A ball by the Dodgers and only one team even inviting him to come to camp, that was the Cardinals. He had three home runs in spring training and made the team. And he had tears in his eyes as he walked out of Mike Matheny's office when Matheny told him that he had made the team. And he called it the most emotional day of his life. And so I got that story in and he fouled off a pitch or two or whatever it was. And I was able to tell that story. And then Tom Verducci mentioned that he's from Selma, Indiana, which is generally Reds territory, but he grew up as a Cardinal fan. And luckily my research had told me that the population of Selma, Indiana is 858. So when they took a close up of Hazel Baker at the plate, then it was natural to say, and you are looking at, unquestionably, its most celebrated and esteemed citizen right now. And then what popped into my head was the following. And it just popped into my head. And I'm at a point now, Joe, where, and this podcast <laughs> allows me to do it to an even greater extent, I'll just say whatever occurs to me because, A, I find it interesting, and B, because some portion of the audience will appreciate it. And I don't worry anymore whether some portion either doesn't get it or even is annoyed by it. But it popped into my head as I'm looking at Jeremy Hazelbaker that he sounds like someone who could be one of the few benign characters in a Dickens novel. So I said, Mr. Hazelbaker, Miss Habersham, and have you, have you met Nicholas Nickleby? Or Oliver Twist. Oliver Twist, Jeremy Hazelbaker, swinging a fly ball to right or whatever it was. So some portion of the audience that's familiar with Dickens probably like that. 
The other portion probably thought I'd lost my mind, but they probably concluded that previously, so I'm not concerned about it. Shouldn't be worried about it. You, you've shared the booth with, well, you've shared the booth with a lot of, of great people, but you've shared the booth with Bob Euchre, who you know, we've, we've talked about Vin. I mean, to me, Euchre is, is the other sort of legend at this point. Right. You know? And one of the great storytellers of all time. So you're in the booth with him, and I know you're, you're of course, you have, you know, you have your own thoughts about baseball and your own stories and so many of those, but you also have one of the great storytellers ever, and you're trying to coax things mm-hmm. out of him. That, that must have been a lot of fun. It was. Now, it was sometimes a two-man booth, me and you, and sometimes a three-man booth with Joe Morgan. Oh, yeah, that's right. And I would go to Joe, and it's not that Uke doesn't have excellent baseball knowledge, because obviously he does, but I would go to Joe for the more technical stuff, and I would tend to go to Uke for the more anecdotal stuff. And because Bob and I had been friends for so long, I knew a lot of his best stories, and I knew a lot of his best lines. And so I was able to set him up or give him room when I knew that a situation was ripe for him. Uh, for example, during the 1995 World Series, during Game 6 in Atlanta, it was Cleveland and Atlanta in that World Series, and Joe Morgan began talking about his own World Series experiences with the Big Red Machine. So he's talking about Johnny Bench and Sparky Anderson and Pete Rose, and then knowing that he would have something funny to say, because I'd heard this story before, but most of the audience had not, I said, Uke, did you ever play in the World Series? And he said, well, I was with the Cardinals in 64 when we played the Yankees in the series, but I was on the disabled list. And I said, what was wrong with you? And he said, I had hepatitis. (laughs) And I said, how did you get that? And he said, the trainer injected me with it. (laughs) And... You're supposed to be laughing now, Joe. I am laughing. I, okay. I was picking up on the a, mic. You know, a, t- a typical Euchre thing <laughs> delivered deadpan. The trainer injected me with it. And that accounts, in part, for why the Cardinals managed to win the World Series, <laughs> that Euchre wasn't around to screw it up. He was Tim McCarver's backup on the 64 Cardinals as a catcher. He was. He's so funny and so, you know, and he's got such great stories and, and – it does hide, you know, the fact that that one he was he was a way better player than he than he would ever say publicly. He was a good receiver with a very strong arm. He was a lousy hitter, two hundred lifetime hitter. But Phil Necro give, credits his career to him, if I'm not mistaken. Phil Necro was one of the few guys that could. <laughs> no one could master catching the knuckleball, but but Uke was better at it than most. Yes, and I think he actually it was more to the point that Uke was willing to accept that he was going to have like 63 pass balls that year. I mean, that's, he right. went to Phil Necro and said, you keep throwing it, I'll take the pass balls, you just keep throwing that pitch. Which uh, You know, which... in fact, you're right. You've got it more right than I do because now that I think of it, there was a year when Uke led the majors in pass balls, which is a category you don't want to lead in, and he only caught about 50 games right. that season, but many of them were Necro's games. And he was by far and away, I mean, I think he had double the number of whoever the next best or worst in that category was. And I know that he's used that line, I mean, with one of my all-time favorite lines, which is how you catch the knuckleball, you wait for it to stop rolling and you pick it up. I just think mm-hmm. his, I mean, it really was a big part of his career. But Phil Necro, and I've, I've actually interviewed him on that very topic, has said that it is, is as many pass balls as he took. He always said, "You keep throwing that pitch," and you know it got somebody to the Hall of Fame for sure. Yeah, <laughs> it's incredible. And, then, and eventually, it got you. Stories like that got you to the broadcasters' wing of the Baseball Hall of Fame. That's exactly right. All right, so you know one of my favorite stories of yours, and it's it's a little bit it's a little bit obscure uh, to to many people, but it is. I I had just been entered uh, into a charity Stratomatic Baseball League, uh, which, mm-hmm. which I'm going to be a part of this year. And, of course, you are you were a big Stratomatic player as a, as a yeah. young man. Is that correct? Yes, I was. And, uh, and I'm trying to remember the name of the player who, who ended up being the biggest star in your Stratomatic world. Oh, I know where you're going. <laughs> My cousin, John Miller, uh, who went on to become – an extremely successful oncologist, very bright guy, 
but we were just a couple of kids. He was um, a couple years older than me, and he discovered Stratomatic first and introduced me to it. I think he was 13 and I was 11. And we would play these single games or sometimes set up best four of seven series. We played the old time teams, and it's how I learned some of the baseball history I know, because you'd be playing the 1924 Senators with Walter Johnson against the 1934 Gas House Gang Cardinals, and you'd learn their entire roster. And Stratomatic also evaluated them defensively and how good they were as base runners, and it gave you some sense of uh, the great teams that you'd never seen before, but uh, you were learning about them while you were rolling the dice. So anyway, we play this one game, and it's the Braves against the Reds from, uh, I don't know, around 1965 or 66. And in the bottom of the ninth, his Reds team leads my Braves team <laughs> 6-3, to three, and I have two outs and nobody on. I then load the bases on a walk, a single, and an error. And, I, and the pitcher's spot is coming up. And so I've got to go to my bench, and I look at my cards, and one of the guys on the bench is Gary Geiger, <laughs> who had, was an outfielder, journeyman outfielder, much of his career with the Red Sox. And that particular year, he hit under 200, but he had six home runs in about 100 at-bats. So he had a very prominent home run on his card. I think it was 3-6. There were other guys more likely to get a base hit available to me. But I'm thinking, I could end this with a flourish. I'm down 6-3 to three in the bottom of the ninth, but now i got the bases loaded. And this is the best chance I've got to unload a grand slam. So I send Gary Geiger up. And I'm sure other people who have played Stratomatic did it this way, too. You couldn't just say, all right, here he is. You had to kind of make his card walk from an imaginary dugout toward the batter's box. And you had to announce him. Now batting for the Braves, pinch hitting for Phil Necro, number 16, or whatever his number was, Gary Geiger. So up comes Gary Geiger. And I've got the dice in my hands, and I'm like, you know, some, some character from Guys and Dolls, you know, hoping, hoping that he can throw seven just once. Come on, baby. Blowing on the dice. Three, six. Come on, baby. One time. Three, six. Boom. There it was. Gone. To this day, to this day, if I say Gary Geiger to Dr. John Miller, it's, and now I'm going to toss out a reference that you'll get and half your audience won't. There used to be an old vaudeville routine where the mention of the words Niagara Falls mm -hmm. would get the character to go berserk. Niagara Falls. Slowly I turn. Step by step, inch by inch, because something traumatic had happened to the guy <laughs> at Niagara Falls. Well, Gary Geiger is like that. Gary Geiger is like a red cape waved in front of a, an angry bull, if you mention his name to Dr. John Miller. I'd like to find Dr. John Miller and just say Gary Geigerton, just to see. Just to I see. could arrange the meeting. You know, I actually think these, these days he's gotten over it. I think, he, I think he revels in it. Because after all, all he does is save people's lives, and I broadcast ball games. But this is, this is the only time he gets mentioned to a larger audience. So I think he kind of likes it. He doesn't mind being on the losing end 50 years later. He's cool with it. He's cool with it, of the Gary Geiger thing. All right, so uh, I want to talk a little baseball with you, but before, before we do that, what is the story you get asked most to tell? Well, there's a Marvin Barnes story uh, that people seem to know about. Uh, Marvin, who has passed away within the last couple of years, was a great but troubled player, All-American from Providence, took them to the Final Four uh, in 1973, I think it was, um, was the second most prized senior coming out of college that year uh, after UCLA's Bill Walton. No question in my mind that had he stayed on the straight and narrow, which was like saying if the sun <laughs> rose in the west and set in the east, it just wasn't going to happen. Uh, but if Marvin somehow had stayed on the straight and narrow, uh, he would have been a Hall of Fame player. 
But in any case, what he was was a Hall of Fame character. So the Spirits of St. Louis are playing in Louisville, Kentucky, against the Kentucky Colonels, who had a very good team. Artis Gilmore, Dan Issel, Louis Dampier, Hubie Brown was uh, their coach. And that year they won the ABA championship, the 74-75 season. Louisville is about a four-hour drive if you're making good time from St. Louis. But it's on Eastern time. So after losing the game the night before against the Colonels, the team gathers um, at the airport, and teams didn't travel by charter then. And the traveling secretary, who was also the trainer, hands out the itinerary. And it says, TWA flight 305, depart Louisville 8 a.m., arrive St. Louis 756. (laughs) And Marvin, holding this sheet of paper in his hands, beckons me over. Bro, bro, bro. And he drapes an arm over my shoulder, and from more than a foot above me, he looks down at me, brandishing this itinerary, and he says, look at this. And I say, yes. And he says, bro, I don't know about you, but as for me, I am not getting on any time machine. (laughs) Now, that story's been circulated enough that people ask me to tell it, even though they know the story. (laughs) For some reason, they want me to tell it. But what some people get the misimpression of is that Marvin was somehow confused or that he was dumb. No, he knew he was saying something funny. And here it is 40 years later, and people still want to hear the story. It's still great. It's still great. Now, why was he called Bad News Barnes, by the way? What, what sort because, of... Well, because a lot of bad news followed him around. <laughs> um, you know, he, he was involved with not only drug use for a while, he was involved with, uh, with serious drug cartel situations, um, there was criminal activity. I don't. Marvin was not a malicious guy, but Marvin got himself in and out of a lot of trouble and uh, and self-destructed on what could have been a, a Hall of Fame career. I mean, he was basically done. He was wasted um, by the time he was 26, 27, uh, and talked openly in later years about snorting cocaine on the bench, um, about taking guns into the locker room. All right, before I let you go, I do want to – Kind of get a couple of baseball thoughts for the year. Uh, okay. It's still early, but uh, who are you impressed with? Well, I'm very impressed, and I'm not alone in this. I'm very impressed by the Chicago Cubs. Sure. And it's not like they snuck up on us. They were getting better. They were, if anything, ahead of schedule as Theo Epstein put this team together. You look at the really good young players they have. A shame that they lost Kyle Schwarber for the year. But they have so many good young players who have either already come into their own or are just about to come into their own, headed by Chris Bryant. But Schwarber went healthy. Dexter Fowler's a terrific player. Jorge Soler can become a terrific player. Uh, Addison Russell, the shortstop, has all kinds of upside. Anthony Rizzo, the first baseman, is a very dangerous hitter. And they've got a good bench with guys like the veteran Ben Zobrist. And now they've got a front three of the Cy Young Award winner in Jake Arrieta, who seems to have picked up right where he left off. John Lester, whose postseason experience could become important. They've added John Lackey, who is also the kind of competitor you want on the mound in a big game, and he's off to a, a 3-0 and start. So that front three, you get into the postseason, that's going to give them an advantage over a lot of teams. Uh, and then when you've got Pedro Strope and Hector Rondon to close things out as your eighth and ninth inning guys, that, that's a pretty strong team. And Joe Madden's a terrific manager. Yeah, I, I, think, they're, I think they're the class of the, of the National League, and obviously – you and I both know the game has changed. So much of it is about postseason now, and and you gotta you mm-hmm. gotta you know get through the through the various uh, series, and and that's you know the best team doesn't always or even often do that. But I think they're the best team. What what about in the American League? Well, when you look at Toronto's lineup, it's just hellacious. Yeah, it's just hellacious. They got three guys who might hit forty home runs. Um, they've got Tulowitzki for a full season. Um, this is a terrific team. Now, is there, is there pitching since David Price is gone? 
is their pitching as good teams as the Mets, as uh, as the Cubs? Sure. No. No. Uh, but so that might be a relative, not weakness, but uh, a strength that is not uh, a ten on a ten scale. But boy, offensively, they're they're really something to deal with. But I can't I can't count Kansas City out either. They just play the game in such a smart fashion. They're such a good defensive team. Uh, they run counter to uh, the general trend in baseball, and that they don't strike out a lot. And this was something that John Smoltz and I talked about on the broadcast last night. And I think this is an example with the tsunami of information and statistics that are out there. You have to pick the ones that tell a story and make an interesting and potentially significant point. You can't just throw everything out there. You know, it doesn't matter that a guy is hitting 310, but during his current nine-game hitting streak, he's hitting 333. That's just, you know, clutter. That's numerical clutter. But here's something when you talk about the Cubs and the Royals that's interesting. The Cubs struck out more than any team in the major leagues last year. Now, sabermetrics downplays the importance of the strikeout. The Cubs walk a lot, and they have a team that can hit a lot of home runs. So generally speaking, the analytics guys are happy with that. But the Royals struck out fewer than 1,000 times, which is a low total in modern baseball, and by far they had the lowest total of strikeouts. I don't think it's a coincidence that the Mets, with their great pitching, swept the Cubs Mm -hmm. in the LCS, but the Royals were able to deal with the Mets. It wasn't that they pounded them in most of the games that they won in the World Series, but they made contact enough to make things happen. They put pressure on the Mets' defense. They ran bases. They made the Mets make plays, and sometimes they couldn't make them. You know, when you get into October... And you're facing not the fourth and fifth starter usually. You know, you're facing the front three of a team good enough to make the playoffs. Then the dynamics, the pitcher-hitter dynamics changes, and it becomes more important. You're going to get more low-scoring games. It becomes more important to make contact, to move runners, to get a guy home one way or another from third base with less than two outs. So teams that make contact tend to do better in the postseason, I think, as a general rule. So if there's a weakness for the Cubs, and even Joe Madden himself acknowledged that when we talked to him yesterday. He said, I don't want, I don't want our guys um, to become tentative at the plate, but in certain situations, I do want them to think about making contact. I, I do want them to think that a strikeout is not just another out in some situations. Well, I, I think your point is 100% right, and, and it's something that Dayton Moore was talking about uh, you know, just last week. Uh, we were talking, and he was saying pretty specifically, we play with a high energy. I mean, there's we want our pitchers yep. to move fast. We want hitters. We don't we don't work the counts, but we want our hitters to to put the ball in play and put pressure, like you say, on the defense. And you know that that's a way. You know that is that is a path to to winning. I mean, it, it has proven to be a path to winning for that team. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, that is, that's a difficult thing to, you know, you, you can look at a lot of different statistics and, and, you know, I'm a big stats guy, but you can look at a lot of different right. statistics and you can miss out on, you know, he was talking about Ian Kennedy and, you know, they the Royals spent a lot of money bringing Ian Kennedy in. And he said, you know, he's our kind of pitcher. We just, he's going to, he's going to work fast and he's going to keep the, you know, keep us in the game. Yep. And he's, and, you know, I think sometimes we can get very much weighed down with there's only one way statistically, there's only sure. one way, and, and it's a mistake, I think. But I'll tell you, analytics actually backs up um, the idea that taking chances on the bases or what we used to think of as chances makes sense more often than traditional baseball people might have thought. Last night, for example, a lot of things, I guess, that relate to our conversation happened in last night's game. The Cardinals have Matt Holliday at third base with one out in a low-scoring game. And Yadier Molina lifts a fly ball to medium right field. So Jason Hayward's going to catch it. We know how good his arm is. And Holliday is not a speedster anymore at age 36. 
So we know there's a good chance that Hayward is going to throw Holiday out. But the Cardinals send him. He is, in fact, out at the plate on an excellent throw by Hayward, a good catch and tag by Montero. He's out at the plate. But that's a play that the Cardinals should try 100% of the time. Colton Wong is on deck. He's hitting 211. Maybe you don't send him with nobody out. But with one out, and after Hayward catches it, it's now two outs, your chance that somehow the Cubs don't pull this playoff perfectly is much greater than the next guy getting a base hit. And I think, historically, the way third-base coaches have looked at this is, is he more likely to be safer out? If he's more likely to be out, I'm not going to send him. But the real question is, are we more likely to score in this inning right. if I send him? Not whether he's more likely to be safer out. What's more likely to happen next? That's 100% right. I, I really believe that what Eric Hosmer did in the World Series right. was that was a good risk. That was a good risk. And maybe he's out. I mean, I don't know what the percentages are, but let's say he's out 60%, 65% of the time. Well, right. is, I mean, that's a 35% chance he's going to score the run, which is probably better than your chances with two outs. I mean, that's, yeah. you know, that's... If, if, if Ted Williams or Stan Musial is the next hitter, <laughs> right. it's still a good risk. <laughs> it's, it's really... And it's certainly a good risk, no disrespect intended, it's certainly a good risk when Colton Wong is coming up next, batting 211 at this stage. Yeah, no, I, I think that point is 100% right. I mean, it's, it's definitely... Well, they're just, it's what base, makes baseball so much fun is that there's so many different ways to look at these things. And, and uh, you know, I, I think, and that's one of the fun things about Stratomatic too, is that Stratomatic would always give you a number, right? He, he's out right. one to 14 or whatever. Well, that's still a 35% chance of scoring. So, so you know, it's worth, is, is that worth it? It depends, but it, it very well might be. So that's so much fun. Well, Bob, I can't thank you enough for, uh, for taking the time here. Well, you certainly gave me the time. And as you know, if you give me a chance to talk, I'll do some talking. Yes, you will, which is good, which is good. Well, thank you again. Thanks, Joe.